God, our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your salvation in our lives. We've sung about it here today, Father, and in our other campuses and venues. We're so grateful that you are the one who has reached into our lives and in our hearts and regenerated our minds and our souls in order to believe and trust in you. And Lord, we also know that there are so many folk in this world, even in our culture here, our city, our families, our neighborhoods, that have yet to realize at your offer of salvation. And so, Lord, we're, we're turning up the heat on that uh, with our own church so that we might be a part of what you want to do in this world. So bless us now as we look at the words of Jesus honestly and in a forthright way. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So it would not be an overstatement, it would not be hyperbolic for me to say that one of the most challenging, if not paradigm-shifting teachings of Jesus, especially for religious church-going people, is found in Luke chapter 15, the chapter that we're spending three weeks in right now as a church. Because in this chapter, folks, Jesus pulls out all stops, he pulls no punches in communicating to us both how God feels as well as how he acts toward those who are not yet in his kingdom, what Jesus called the lost. And you can't miss sight of the setting here of Luke 15 because it's one of the most unique settings in all of the New Testament. Because the whole chapter begins by telling us that together, all together in the same room, you have the elite religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes, but then you have the top immoral renegades of Jesus' day, the tax collectors and the sinners. And so honestly, it'd be like having Billy Graham, Madonna, Beth Moore, and Marilyn Manson all in the same room. Some of you are going, who's Marilyn Manson? Google him later. You'll see why it would be weird to have him and Billy Graham in the same room and Beth Moore. I mean, that's really what's happening here. And you got to latch onto that. And neither group really gets what Jesus is trying to do here. I mean, the religious leaders have no idea why he's speaking to the likes of Marilyn Manson and Madonna. And Marilyn Manson and Madonna have no idea why Jesus is speaking to them. And so Jesus at this point tries or decides to tell three simple yet revealing stories in hopes that all people, the saved and the unsaved, the religious and irreligious, will understand what God is really up to on planet Earth. And though these stories are unique, each in their own way, as we learned last week, they do each carry a similar set of themes that you and I don't want to miss. So very quickly, by way of review from last week, because each story has kind of this flow to it, here's what these three stories uh, that Jesus tells us are trying to get at. But first is that Jesus is trying to tell us that God attaches great value to what is lost. He attaches great value to what is lost. And what is lost? Human beings. Human beings made in his image that he made to run on the fuel of faith in himself. They're not doing that. They've gone their own way. They decided to do their own thing. And they are lost without him. And yet they have great value in his sight. Everybody matters to God. Jesus is teaching us that here. But then secondly, he's teaching us that God engages in an all-out search for what is lost. Now, remember the passage from the Old Testament we looked at last week? The eyes of the Lord move to and fro over all the earth 
searching for those whose hearts would be completely his, searching for those who would respond to his grace and, and, and respond to the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. God engages in an all-out search. And then we wrapped up last week by noting that God throws a huge celebration when what is lost is found. And so all of heaven rejoices, more so over anything else that ever happens on earth when a lost person is found and comes home to God. These are the three themes repeated in all three stories that Jesus tells the religious people as well as the irreligious people of his generation. And we explored these themes last week, and we looked at the first of the three stories, that of the lost sheep. And today we get to the second story that interestingly has nothing to do with sheep or animals. And I want us all to read it. It's much shorter than the first story. It's only contained in three verses, verses 8 through 10 of Luke 15. And here is what this story says. Follow along as I read Jesus' words. He says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I've found the coin which I had lost. He says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, folks, this story at first glance, if you're tracking with me, seems very similar to the first one that we looked at last week. I mean, it has all the same themes, as I've already noted, of something being lost and there being a diligent search and then a great celebration when what is lost is found. But what I'm going to show you right now, there is a rather subtle but very potent twist to this story that makes it very divergent and different from the one of the lost sheep. And this twist has everything to do with the main character of Jesus' second story here, as well as the nature of what is lost. For you see, what some commentators on the Bible point out, the experts who write about the Bible, is that the thing that is lost in this second story here, now watch this, is not a sheep or a human being, as will be in the third story, but what is lost here, if you noticed, is a coin. And as you and I both know, coins, by their very nature, are inanimate objects. They have no will or personality. And so unlike sheep and sons, they are lost because they stray or choose to run away. Coins can't do that. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. Coins cannot lose themselves. Coins are lost because somebody lost them. And this is confirmed to us in Jesus' own words in verse 9 when the woman finds the missing coin and she says, and I quote, the coin which I had lost. So she confesses to being the one who lost the coin. So you got a coin which can't lose itself and you have a woman who confesses to losing the coin. And so what most commentators on the Bible point out here is that this main character can't be God. And that's a different twist because in the story that we looked at last week, the, 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 the shepherd who, lose, who uh, finding the lost sheep is most likely God. 
And in the story that we're going to look at next week, the father who welcomes back the lost son is most likely God. But in this middle story, at least in the way that Jesus tells the story, it really can't be God because it would make God the one who lost his his human beings, his creation. And we know from reading the rest of the Bible that God didn't lose us. We strayed like sheep from him. And so what some Bible experts posit is that the woman here must represent something or someone else other than God. And it's here that this huge twist to this story comes in. Because what they suggest is that the woman represents the church. That the woman represents, because remember, this is why it's important that we understand who the, who the key players in the room are when Jesus told this story. The woman here represents those who are already convinced, the church or back then, the, the Jewish religious leaders, who have probably fallen asleep at the wheel or lost their zeal and passion for lost people and hence have gotten ingrown. I know it's hard to picture churches that get ingrown, but just go with me on it. They've gotten kind of ingrown, self-focused, dug a big, big moat around their church to keep all the barbarians out like they did in the Middle Ages. We just have invisible moats today. And so we, the church, are ones who have contributed to culture being lost. And now, what's cool is that God is inviting us to join in the rescue efforts. Some of you think I'm reading too much into this right now. Uh, if you don't believe me, listen to how Alfred Plummer, a well-respected Bible expert of the last century and a professor at Trinity College in Oxford, England, says it in his commentary on Luke he says, and I quote, the main points of difference between this and the preceding parable are the changes from a man to a woman and from a sheep which could stray of its own accord and feel the evil consequences to a coin which could do neither. From this, it follows that the woman can blame herself for the loss of the coin, which the man does not do with regard to the sheep. Here it is. He says, hence, we may infer that the woman represents the church rather than God if she reps, represents anything at all. And so do you see, if we're reading this right, gang, and I think we are, the church, those of us who have already been found and become followers of Jesus are now being brought into the equation it brings us into God's primary plan for this fallen world, namely to become part of the search and rescue process. This is why I called the message today uh, becoming a, a, a part of God's rescue efforts. This is what God is doing, Jesus is doing in this second story here. And I would submit to you that this twist changes everything because what it does is most poignantly shift the ownership and the responsibility for the search and rescue of lost people to not just God, but now to you and me. And this makes sense because we're called what by God? The body of Christ. And so we already know that we're his feet, we're his hands. As I've said, even at times we're his mouthpiece heralding the gospel. And so we're part of God's plan in reaching a lost world. 
And so in our time remaining, notice with me no less than three profound implications of this amazing twist that I'm going to show you are found right in the very words of Jesus here that now change the focus from just God in the first person singular in the search and rescue process to now we in the first person plural. First, notice with me that this story implies that we, you and me, have lost friends who matter to God and need to be found. And if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to latch on to this, that, that God, when he looks at your life, doesn't just look at your life and say, hey, gee, I hope you go to church. I hope you get over that sin. I hope you get your act together in your marriage. I hope you get more responsible in your finances. I hope you raise better kids. I mean, he wants all that for you. But he also, in fact, more so than anything, says you're rubbing shoulders every day with people that don't know me, and I want to use you in that search and rescue process. How do we know this? Uh, look at how Jesus begins this in verse 8. I love this. He says, or what woman? Who's the woman here? Anybody know? The church. Good. I'm glad you guys got that. So, or what woman if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin? Now, we, we know from our understanding of the first century that most likely when they first heard this story and Jesus said that a woman had 10 silver coins, it probably meant a couple of things. It probably meant, one, that this woman didn't have a husband because if it was, they would have said in that male-dominated society that this man had 10 silver coins. So you have this widow, most likely, that has 10 silver coins, and these 10 silver coins almost surely represented her entire wealth. I mean, they were valuable to her. They were so valuable that losing just one, a tenth of that, was a huge deal. Maybe for you, you have so much money that losing a tenth of your wealth wouldn't be all that big of a deal. But for this gal, in a, in a culture 2,000 years ago, which was difficult enough for married people, losing uh, a tenth of her wealth was a huge deal. So the point Jesus is making is that that one coin was very valuable to her. And that's the point he's telling us. I want you to imagine that you have 10 dear friends or family members that you care about. That might be a lot for some of you, but just go with me on that. There, there are 10 people in your life that, that, that matter to you. What Jesus is saying here is that though many of them might already be found, maybe you come from a Christian home or you hang around with a lot of Christian people or have a lot of friends here at church, and so many of your 10 closest friends might already be Christians, what Jesus is saying is that if there is even one of them, one person in your sphere of influence that doesn't know the Lord, that is lost, that in God's eyes, that's a huge deal. And here's what he's even saying. It's worth your attention and energy. It's worth you losing sleep over it. It's worth you being bothered by it because it bothers God. And so the point is, is pretty clear that we represent the church. The church is represented here by the woman. The woman has lost coins. And so if one of those coins is lost, it is a big deal because we all have friends who are lost and every one of them matters to God. And notice here too, and I don't think I'm reading too much into this gang, but it doesn't just warrant your attention. But again, if we're understanding Jesus' story here right, and you're going to like this, it warrants our 
attention. Because again, the woman here represents the church. See, see that, that to me is a game changer. And, and that to me actually gets my heart beating about Scottsdale Bible Church. You're saying, what do you mean? You know, you know for the longest time, we, we function very uh, individualistic, I guess, as Christians. In other words, you have your own quiet times and obviously your own house, your own marriage, your own family, your own job. And we might gather for an hour on Sunday or maybe another hour for a Bible study and maybe you develop a few friendships at church. But, but by and large, most of you function very individually. And hence, you treat your lost friends and family very individually. In other words, you probably don't talk about them very much. You certainly don't ask the church to help you with this or anything like that. You just sort of suffer along with it and try to do what you can with it. But, but Jesus is changing that here. He's saying that every lost coin, every lost person is our problem. So Dave and Carol's lost friends and family, that's our problem. <laughs> Your lost friends and family, that's our problem together. Susan, your lost friends and family, that, that's our problem together. Those of you watching online, get to church. That's our problem together. I love you. I know why you can't be here, some of you. And, and so the reality is, is that they we're all in this together, all seriousness, even those of you who join us online. And so it's the church's job as one single unit banded together, unified under the gospel to care about each of our lost coins in our lives because that's what the woman represents. And once you understand this, the question then becomes, how do we do this? I mean, it's one thing to say that we are collectively responsible for lost people, but what are we supposed to do for each other in light of that? And I believe Jesus actually goes on to give us some hints to the answer here. And that is point two, when he says that we must join God's search for those seeking him. And, and again, the emphasis is on we, that we collectively as a church need to band together and join God's search. Again, if the woman represents the church, look at what Jesus goes on to say. He goes on to say, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When I was doing research on this passage years and years ago, I've been studying this passage for almost 20 years, uh, one, I think it was either a pastor or a Bible expert, pointed out something that I didn't see initially in these words of Jesus here. He pointed out that what's happening in this story, now watch this, is that the woman is using multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying search. I like that. She's using multiple tools to mount a progressively intensifying search. So track it here. She begins by using a lamp. So I asked our creative team to get us what might look like a first century lamp, and this is pretty close. It's made of clay, rounded, wouldn't have a handle because middle-class homes back then couldn't have lamps with handles. They couldn't afford that. So she has a lamp like this with a little wick in it and some oil in it, and she's searching her house. Now, you need to understand this. Her house would be very dark. And you're saying, why? Well, because windows back then were for rich people. If you had windows in your house, uh, they would have to go to extra care to build the house that way. Plus, it would allow a lot of dust in. And so you'd have to have shutters or something to block the windows. And all that was very expensive. 
So most middle-class people back then had houses that had no windows in them, and you needed the oil lamp even during the day just to see. So picture this poor woman there in a dark home with this little oil lamp. Do we all understand this doesn't throw like 300 lumens HD flashlight type of thing? I mean, this is just a little oil lamp. And, and so when it says that, that she searched the house with it, we can picture her looking under tables and, and, and atop the credenza and, and, and trying to see under the bed and looking into dark corners. She's on an all-out search with this little oil lamp to find that lost coin. That's the first tool she uses. But it doesn't work. And so Jesus tells us she opts for a second tool. She grabs her broom. And this would be very similar to what they had back then, a straw broom. And so she grabs the broom and she does what she couldn't do with the candle. She starts sweeping in places where even the light couldn't shine, really dark corners, under the bed, maybe a top somewhere where she couldn't get to uh, with her light. And so she's using this second tool to, to try to search intensely for this, this coin. And then Jesus throws in some wording that is really fascinating. He says, then she searches carefully. Now, that's an interesting phrase there in the original Greek. It means to diligently seek something. It carries with it the idea that at this point, after the lamp, after the broom, and not finding the coin, this woman just basically does this. She says, all right, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. She rolls up her sleeves. She says, I'm going to turn up the heat on an already hot search, and I'm going to find this coin. And so the implication is she gets down on her hands and knees, scours the place, gets on chairs, looks at top's cabinets, checks the outhouse, looks all around the outside of the property, looks anywhere and everywhere that she can think of, and she doesn't stop until she finds her coin. And that's the picture Jesus wants you to have. Multiple tools mounting a progressively intensifying search until what is lost is found. And folks, I would submit to you that contained in this is an implicit call for you and I. That each of us, and together as a church, need to engage in a similar multi-tiered search that journeys with those that we love until we see them found by God. And we don't give up until that happens. Now, some of you are saying, well, what would that look like today? Like we're not actually gonna get a, a lamp and a broom and, and stuff like that. So what, what do we do today as the church to reach those around us? Because I know some of you get very threatened at this point because you think we're gonna get all evangelistic or whatever. Well, we are, but let me show you why it's not threatening. Uh, first is that I think the first tool in our bag today as followers of Jesus, and every one of us can do this, is simply to develop what I would call a redemptive relationship. A redemptive relationship. A redemptive relationship is simply a relationship that you have with somebody that's lost and has redemptive potential. And by the way, that includes just about every lost person because none of us know who is gonna get saved and who isn't. Only God knows that. And so every lost person in our life has redemptive potential. My point is, uh, let's turn up the heat on developing relationship with people like that. And here's where it's not threatening. I don't know about you, but the redemptive relationships I have in my life right now, I've chosen, now this 
might seem like rocket science to some of you, but it just seems so simple to me. I, I've chosen them because they like me and we have a natural affinity together. In other words, I don't go out and try to choose people that hate me. You know, some of you are like that, you're like a challenge, but I don't do that. I, I just choose people in my life, service providers, neighbors, friends, uh, that, that are in my life that, that God just has given a natural affinity, that they like cars, that, that they're ex-athletes, big emphasis on X, you know, they, they, they like sports or whatever. There, there's, an, there's an interest that we have together. And so I, I just make sure I'm intentional about developing those relationships. And here's the cool thing. Every one of you have relationships like that with friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors, service providers, fellow students. I mean, if you don't, then just get a little bit more intentional about that. And then here's the cool thing is that at some point, here's your second tool, in the process of developing a, a, a redemptive relationship, you share your story with them. You see, I, I think we make too big of a deal out of evangelism, like it's this big threatening thing that we got to somehow shove down somebody's throat an understanding of the gospel when they don't want it. The beautiful thing about redemptive relationships is that if they like you, and they probably do, they have some interest in you, at some point, they're going to take an interest in your life. This happens to me all the time. I actually love this. I, uh, I, I have multiple redemptive relationships in my life right now. One of them's with a service provider I see every week. And, uh, you know, th this actually happened. At first, when he found out I was a minister, you know, that, that, that little wall went up, right? Because it happens all the time. You know, what do you do? I'm a minister. And then he's like, oh, my gosh, I swear to the curse, you know, what I do and, and all this. And sort of the wall goes up. And then look and you say, well, as long as you're happy and things like that. And it's very awkward. And, and that, that happens initially. Uh, but, but after a while, here's what almost always happens, and, and, and I love this. Eventually, for people that are in my circle that don't know the Lord, they'll, they'll say something. They'll, they'll say, hey, Jamie, can I ask you a question? And I'll say, sure. And they'll say, why do you do what you do? And I go, what do you mean? And they go, well, you seem so normal. Like, I, I've known ministers, and they're, they're not like you. Like, you, you talk normal, you, you have interest in things that aren't weird, you know, and, 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 and you have an interest in me, and you can carry a conversation and things like that. And they go, I, you just seem like a regular guy, so I'm just having trouble connecting why you do what you do. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a good time for me to tell my story or not? Yeah. Because I, I love that. I'll say, well, let me tell you this first. The reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is not because I had some sociological interest in religion when I was at the university. That's not what happened here. I said, I had no intentions to become a minister. In fact, if they had this, I would have been most likely voted not to be a minister in my high school class. I said, but when I was 18 years old, I got sabotaged by God. And I didn't see it coming. And I said, Jesus entered my life in a way that just changed everything. I mean, it was radical. In fact, it was so radical, I tell people this, that when I was at the university in college and it was time to choose a vocation, I had no other interests outside of this walk that I had developed with God. And when I found out I could actually get paid to help people focus on God, I was like, I'm in. And I said, that's why I do what I do. And if you're interested in talking further, I'd love to talk to you more about that.
Let me ask you a question. Does that sound very threatening to somebody? It's really not. And you see, that's the beauty of using these multiple tools is that, you know, we develop redemptive relationships. And at some point, if you have any guts at all, if you have any intentionality at all, you're going to get a chance to, in a non-threatening way, share your story. And here's the cool thing about the culture we live in today. They can argue with an idea. They can argue with your politics. They can argue with your economics. They can argue with your, your social values. But very few people are going to argue with your experience. And so as long as you keep the conversation to this is what I have experienced with the Lord. This has been my religious or personal spiritual experience. I'm telling you, most people, they might not buy it. In fact, most times they're not going to say, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. How can I sign up? That probably will not be their response initially. But they're not going to argue with you. They're not going to sit there and go, Arr. I mean, they're only going to do that if you all of a sudden just go, well, and I got these four laws. Let me share those with you right now. And let me, you know, if you do that, then yeah, that might be too aggressive for some folks. But sharing your story is usually not. And here's the third thing you have, the third tool that you have. So you have the lamp, you have the light. Here's where it starts to really mount up is that as you share your story and people are thinking about it, now watch this, you have the wonderful ability to invite them to church. And this is where we all are in this together. My dear friend Ramona is out here right now. Ramona became a believer here at this church, what, seven years ago? Eight years ago? A little while back. And uh, she became a Christian, and her husband Steve as well, because they were invited to Scottsdale Bible Church by her boss, of all people, where she worked. It's actually a funny story. I won't go into the whole story, but the very first time that she was invited to church here, I got a little bit animated, which I can do sometimes, and she went home and said, that pastor yells, I'm not going back there. <laughs> true, true story. And a couple months later, her husband Steve said to her, you know, I, I think we need to continue to follow up on this thing. We need to go back there. And that was the day that we did a, a, an invitation to receive Christ and who cares whether the pastor was animated or not? She was being moved by the Holy Spirit, and so was Steve, to come receive Christ. I, I know the problem that some of you have with inviting friends to church, and, and I get it. Uh, you know, maybe this, this, um, this uh, will help. And I'll go over here to do this. You, you know, when you consider all of culture, so these are all the things happening in culture out here. Um, church, and let's see that this little funnel here represents church, it's kind of a narrow funnel. I understand that. That's what people mean when they say, gosh, I don't want to invite somebody to church because they're going to think we're weird, you know, and creepy and strange. And I kind of understand that. I mean, especially as culture gets more crazy. Um, you know, when you think about what you're asking somebody to do in coming to church, like if they say, well, what do you do at your church? You said, well, it's really cool. We're going to sing a bunch of songs and clap. And then we're going to, you know, hear, hear a funny guy tell some announcements. And then, and then the, a guy's going to get up and, and give a 40-minute talk. You know, doesn't that sound fun? I mean, if I was like a seeker in culture today, I'd go, really, really? You want me to come to an event where we're going to sing songs and clap? That sounds weird. And, and then we're going to hear a funny guy for a couple minutes. And then we're going to hear a guy talk for 40 minutes. And no, that doesn't sound very fun to me. And, and so I get that. Some of you are a bit shy to to normally ask friends to come to church. So years ago, somebody shared this with me. And, and for those of you who are Baptists, you're going to love this. It's this kind of Baptist in its orientation. But they said, what if a couple of times a year, the church would widen the funnel 
when it comes to welcoming seekers and lost people. So if the funnel is normally like this, what if a couple of times a year we all banded together and made the funnel a little bit more broad and open? Again, if you're Baptist, this is the old bring a friend Sunday uh, mindset. And, and you're saying, well, what would that mean? Well, what if a couple of times a year uh, we were to preach some messages on a topic that just might be of interest to a lost person in culture today? But the cool thing is we'd, we'd bring this book into the discussion. So, so topically, we'd be focusing on a topic that would interest them, but then we'd show them the cogency and the rationality and the livability of the Bible and its truth bearing on that topic. And what if we promised that we'd do our best in the singing to make the music really good so that even if people might not like to clap in church or something like that, at least they'd walk away going, hey, that music was really good. And what if we asked Neil not to say anything silly, but to behave himself up here and to, and, and, and to you know, and all of our other campus pastors. And, and what would happen if we all banded together as a church and did church that way, still doing all of our business, we're here to worship God, preach the word, but, but do it in a way that would welcome your lost friends, maybe for a few weeks, a couple times a year. We call that the, the closed funnel, open funnel approach to church. So, so a couple times a year, we open the funnel wide and then after that series, you might close it a little bit, you know, and, and those that are ready uh, to go deeper with God or to receive Christ will pop deeper in, and those that aren't ready might pop back out, but then maybe the next Open Funnel series, they'll come back, kind of like spiritual breathing. And I've been doing this for 30 years, and here's what I've learned. It works. And some of you are going, well, I don't, I don't know what I think about that. Well, here's what you need to know. Without telling you that I've been doing this, I've been doing this for 10 years here. I've done series that all of you go, oh my gosh, pastor, that was great. And I go, yeah, well, that was an open funnel series. <laughs> I mean, I do series on relationships. I, I, I do series, I did an entire series on, on a set of paintings. Remember that, the Thomas Cole series, and all of you love that. Guess what? That wasn't for you. That was for others in this community that we needed to get in the door here and you didn't even know the difference because they were still exegetical. They were still from the Bible and you have interest in those topics as well. And so this next series we're doing, Identity Theft, that starts in two weeks, let me now fill you in. That's one of those open funnel series. It's gonna be an amazing series. Every believer here is gonna love it. Because all of you have your identity stolen every day by the evil one in this culture with your success, with this image-focused culture that we're in, and, and your past that has so much bearing on your present. So all of us struggle with that, but that's also something very, of very much interest to your lost friends. And that's going to be an amazing series where we look at success, we look at our past, we look at this image-based culture, and then watch this. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, when we wrap up that four-week open funnel series, I have a special message planned entitled, Returned by Jesus. And after we talk about how this culture has robbed all of us of our God-given identity, we're going to talk at the end of this series about how you get it back, and that the way you get it back is through redemption through the Son as you reconnect with your Father. And what a great time this would be for you to bring a friend. See, these are the tools that you have in your bag. 
redemptive relationships, sharing your story, inviting somebody to church, maybe even during a series like we're doing right now. And then let's just be very honest. This is church. Let's be very frank. This might or might not work. I mean, that day that we invite people to receive Christ, you might be sitting there going, yes, yes, yes. And then the guy goes, I'm not quite ready. I've had people in my life that I have been working on for 35 years. How about you? Some of my best friends growing up, some family members. I have a family member, direct family member, not Kim and I, but in my parents, one of my siblings, that, that has yet to receive Christ. And I've been praying and working for 35 years. So, so if these things don't work, you still have one more final tool, and that is journey with them some more. Amen? That's what you do. In other words, you show them what perseverance and, and, and forbearance is all about, and you stay in the ring with them. And as you stay in the ring with them, who knows what God might do? You see, this is, to me, one of the best applications we have uh, when it comes to applying this parable that Jesus tells us. And the only thing that will prevent you and I from doing this, now watch this, let me the pictures here, is if, nope, go to the pictures, there it goes. The only thing that will prevent us from doing this is that if you try to remain a safe harbor believer versus an open water believer. Do you understand the difference? See, a safe harbor believer is somebody who moors their Christian life in a nice little safe harbor away from the wind and the waves, away from anything that might threaten them, and on this little boat here, this safe harbor boat, they develop their nice Christian church, their nice Christian family. They send their kids to Christian schools, then to Christian university. They listen to Christian radio. They read Christian books. They have a Christian burial. They find a Christian uh, mutual fund. Then they go to a, a Christian cemetery. I mean, we're, we're one of the few countries ever on planet Earth that has a Christian everything. And, and so it's very easy for you to be a safe harbor Christian. And many, many Christians are like that in America. But as you're seeing in this series, God's got nothing against the harbor every once in a while. But, but God is out there in the open water. He's out there braving the sharks and braving the wind and waves. And he's out there trying to rescue boats that are sinking. And what you're hearing today is that he's asking you and me, would you mind leaving the harbor every once in a while? and risk a little bit of death, risk a little bit of injury, but also be able to join in the search and rescue process because now we're ready for point three. Here is the end result, and that is that if you dare to take Jesus up on his offer to join the search and rescue process, we get to unite with heaven's joy when one person is found. <laughs> we get to unite I love how Jesus wraps up this story in verses 9 and 10. It says, and when she, meaning the church, has found it, meaning lost people, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Whoa. We, we looked at this last week, but final thought. Uh, Jesus actually says in other places, there is more joy or greater joy over one sinner who repents than over everything else that happens on earth. 
which means, as I said last week, God gets more fired up about a lost person coming home to him or a lost person being found by him than he does you getting to church, you joining Bible study, you tithing 10% on the gross, you raising semi-good kids, uh, you, you know, overcoming that sin, all the things that we do as Christians, which are all good things to do. God gets more excited when a lost person comes home to him. We're out of time, gang, but here's the bottom line. You and I are invited by God to become part of the search and rescue process. In fact, I'll say it stronger, but we are an integral part of it, an indispensable part of it. We're his hands and we're his feet. At times, we're even his mouthpiece. And what a joy, what a glory that he wants to use you and me. Some of you are fired up about this. Some of you are terrified by this. Some of you, most scary, are placid by this. It just doesn't move you. And I asked you last week to pray about that and ask God to give you a heart for the lost. This week, I'm asking you just to care enough to start developing, if you haven't already, some redemptive relationships. Look for opportunities to share your story. Invite them to church. Grab a card in the foyer here and and at your other places and hand that out to a friend. Take a risk, invite them to church, and then see what God does with that. We're all in this together. We're gonna meet tonight to pray about this and storm the gates of heaven, asking God to move. I think Scottsdale Bible Church is more primed than at least in the last 10 years that I've been here to be used by God in a profound way to impact this culture. And I can't wait to see what he does, but it will take all of us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the clear and wonderful teachings of your son Jesus and how he has taught us so well what it means to understand your heart and your activity on planet Earth here. And Lord, truth be known, there's so many things we wanna see you do in our lives. We wanna see healing, we wanna see uh, growth, we wanna see answers to prayer, we wanna see uh, the lives of our families change. There's so many things that we pray for. But Lord, one of the things we're realizing in this series is that number one on your agenda is to see lost ones who could potentially face a Christless eternity come home to you. And Lord, I'm no evangelist, but I am a pastor and I understand your heart for lost people and I pray that we'd all get your heart. And then as we've seen today, do what we can to become part of the search and rescue process. Use us, we pray, as we look to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, have a great day.